0: You know, there's um, John 14, the whole chapter is is powerful, but the the line that jumped out at me as you were reading that was, you know, Philip asks a question to Jesus, and Jesus' response is, Don't you know me, Philip? I've been with you so long. Don't you know me, Philip? And, you know, I think there are moments like that when we, when we question God in some way. And there's Jesus coming back at us saying. Have, have I been with you this long and you don't know me yet? And that's part of what this series in Isaiah 40 to 55 is about. Knowing him. Getting to know our God better. Seeing him for who he is on his throne. And who he is for us in Christ. And by seeing him coming to know ourselves. So that we don't have questions fired back at us like. Oh, Wesley, don't you know me? Yes Lord, I know you. I want to know you more. I hope that's your prayer. I want to know you more. That's what we're doing here in Isaiah 40 to 55. And this morning we come to. Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46. I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. So if you will, please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end From the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass." I have purposed, and I will do it. This is God's holy word for us as people. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of this word, and especially now the preaching of your word. Open up your word to us. Stand forth. Reveal yourself to us from your word today, and write the eternal truth of the scriptures upon our hearts And may may that truth be evident in our lives. Help us to believe all you call us to believe and to go from this place with hearts full of faith and joy, eager to do all you have called us to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so this morning, I want to begin with a quiz. Okay, putting you on the spot. Theology quiz time, okay? Um, Now, just so you know, the answer to the quiz was in the passage I just read, but you're not allowed to look at it. Stop, look up, don't stop looking down. You're not allowed to look at it. Ushers have been instructed to escort cheaters out of the service. (laughs) Kyle bought a brand new camera that will zoom in on the cheaters so people at home will know who you are. Okay? Quiz time. Which of the following is more like God? A, the highest and mightiest Archangel imaginable in heaven? Or B, a bacteria floating in a toilet? It's a gross quiz. Sorry, Dottie. Okay, who thinks it's A, the Archangel? Ooh, we have one brave soul who thinks it's the Archangel. All right. Oh, two brave souls who think it's the Archangel. Three, I see that hand option B who thinks it's the bacteria okay nobody thinks it's the bacteria okay or is it secret option C (laughs) this is a trick question who thinks it's secret option C okay very clever people very clever secret option C is correct it's a trick question the answer is neither The answer to the quiz, which of these is more like God, an archangel or bacteria, it's actually neither. Because as our passage said, nothing is like God. Nothing is like God. He is incomparable. He is unique. There is no one like him. And in fact, Isaiah repeats this point multiple times, just in Isaiah 40 to 55. Back in chapter 40, he said it twice. Chapter 40, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with Him? Verse 25 of chapter 40, To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And at the end of the day, that's what holy means for God. It means different, unique, other than, separate from, one of a kind. That's why the very first sermon in our series was from Isaiah 6, where the angels encircle the throne, the mightiest archangels in heaven. Circle the throne day and night and they cry out one thing. Holy, holy, holy. He's the thrice holy one. The archangels look at themselves and they look at God and they say different, different, different. Special, unique, one of a kind. He's holy, holy, holy. And in chapter 43 verse 7. He says, nope, I put the wrong reference, somewhere else. (laughs) Don't you love that? And like the book of Hebrews, right? The book of Hebrews says, well, somewhere it says, and he quotes like Psalm 95, that's what I'm doing, it's biblical. Somewhere else it also says there's none like him. You get the idea. It is true now, you should be thinking to yourself, it is true, what about about us? I thought we were made in the image and likeness of God. Mr. Seminary student, did you forget about that one? Genesis 1? Well, no, it is true though. You're thinking right. It is true, we are made in the image and likeness of God. So there is a real sense, isn't there? In which human beings resemble God. We are rational relational religious beings we have been granted dominion over the earth in Genesis 1 as governors and stewards of God's good creation we are called to reflect God's glory to embody his character and to enact his will in his world this is all biblical and true and it's the foundation of Western civilization That human beings individually are unique creations of God made in his image. There is a special resemblance between God and human beings. But at the same time, there is equally a real sense in which human beings are nothing like God at all. You can read King David's meditation on this tension between likeness and unlikeness in Psalm 8. At the very most, human beings have certain attributes that are analogous to some of God's attributes, but they are not remotely identical. We don't have those attributes the same way God has His attributes. God infinitely transcends all His creatures, even those creatures made in His image. So much so that Scripture can say that no one is like God, even us. He is incomparable. He is inimitable. He is peerless in his perfections and matchless in his majesty. There is no one like him. And in our passage this morning, Isaiah continues the same thing he's been doing since chapter 40 the trial of the false gods. He continues this morning to put the false gods on trial. ...by showing how utterly powerless and empty they really are. His message is simple. There is no one like our God. Worshiping and trusting idols leads to utter disappointment. Now, our chapter, chapter 46, is divided up into three sections. And in each of those sections, Isaiah shows us three ways... The God of Israel is unlike all other gods. And those will be our three points on your sermon notes this morning. Number one, He alone carries His people. Number two, He alone stands in heaven. And number three, He alone brings salvation. So let's begin with the first He alone carries His people. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says Baal bows down, Nebo stoops. The, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So, what's going on here? Bel and Nebo, in verse 1, are two of the chief gods of Babylon. Two of the chief gods of the Babylonian people. Isaiah pictures these two chief gods bowing and stooping in submission. Now remember, I made this point a couple weeks ago. To the ancient mind, whatever happens on earth is paralleled by something that happens in heaven. So, to the Babylonians, for example, when two armies clash on the ground, gods are clashing with their armies in heaven. And whichever God wins, decides which army wins. If my God's stronger than your God, my army will beat your army. And if my God crushes your God, and my army beats your army, then your people serve me, and your God serves my God. This is how it works. In the ancient mind, this is how it works. Everything is spiritual, even combat. So, in this scene, in verses 1 and 2, the idols, which depict the images of Baal and Nebo, they're being taken down and carted off. And when the idols come down from their temples, the gods come down from their thrones. So this scene is the dethronement of Baal and Nebo and the destruction of their idols. It's a reminder to Israel of the defeat and exile of Babylon by the Persians. Remember Babylon conquered and exiled Israel and now the Babylonians have been conquered and exiled by Cyrus and the Persians. So the images of Baal and Nebo are taken away it says in verse 1, on the backs of animals. But these images are too heavy for the animals. It says that you have put these burdens on weary beasts. They're too heavy for these animals to bear. And they fall off and they break in verse 2. It says, it says in verse 2, they cannot save the burden, right? These beasts are carrying these idols and they can't save this burden they're carrying. The, the idols fall to the ground and they break and they shatter. What's Isaiah doing here? What's the point of this? He's making two points. He says, first, look, the God, the people couldn't save their gods. I didn't get that backwards. The people couldn't save their gods. Remember what happens on earth parallels what happens in heaven. These idols are falling off these beasts and breaking on the ground. The gods who were depicted in these images and idols couldn't even save their own images. (laughs) The people couldn't save them, they couldn't keep them from falling. And that means the gods need saving. Baal and Nebo need a savior. The second thing he says is that Baal and Nebo couldn't even save their own images. So the people couldn't save their gods. And Baal and Nebo couldn't even keep their their idols from being broken on the ground. Their sacred images that were worshipped by the people in temples and shrines. They couldn't even save themselves. How pathetic. That's what Isaiah is saying. The false gods suffer defeat, they get dethroned, they can't save themselves, they can't even save their idols, and worst of all, they need their own worshippers to come to their rescue. Now look at the response to this pitiful situation of the, with the false gods. Isaiah, who's speaking for Yahweh, says God is the exact opposite. The exact and complete opposite of these weaklings, Baal and Nebo. Look at verses 3 and 4. God says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob. Listen to me. God is saying, Listen, hear me, pay attention. Believe me when I tell you this. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am. I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. This is a fantastic passage. Two points Isaiah makes for us here. Number one, God does not need you to carry him. He's the one who carries you. Baal and Nebo need their worshipers to make their images for them and to carry them around. To protect them, to care for them. But the living God, he makes his own images for himself. You and I. He makes his own images for himself. And he carries you. He protects you. He cares for you. From before your birth, it says, from before your birth to the last breath you take in this world, God has pledged that he will carry you on his almighty shoulders and hold you in his everlasting arms. He doesn't need you to carry him; he gets to be the one who carries you. Second thing Isaiah uh, makes a point about in this in these verses three and four is this: God does not need you to save him; He is the one who saves you, and we need salvation and Ten or twenty different ways, don't we? We need to be saved from sin and from hell and all the rest, like eternal life. We need that kind of salvation. But we need to be rescued and delivered and saved from sickness, from defeat, from failure, from regret, from relationship troubles to all the mess we've made in the past, from difficult scenarios and situations with family, loved ones, job, money. We need help every hour Every year there's a new difficulty, a new battle we have to face. Something else life does to us. Sometimes we suffer. Sometimes we fall. Sometimes we're defeated. Sometimes it feels like we're finished. That life is just grinding me to powder. God is not the one who needs to be saved. We are the ones who need to be saved. He's the one who gets to save us. Even when you suffer, Christian, even when you fall and feel as though you are shattered and broken beyond repair, He has not dropped you. He has not failed you. He has not abandoned you. In fact, He says in Isaiah 46 that He promises to be with you from before you were ever born to the last breath you take in this life I have made and I will bear I will carry and I will save that's God's pledge to you now verse 5 is the link between section 1 and section 2 of the chapter Isaiah's point is In verse 5, let's read it. Verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? He's saying, search high and low. See who you can find. Show me my equal. Show me somebody who measures up to me at all. Come on. No, show me. Really. Show me my equal. Compare me. Who am I like? Who's like me? It's a challenge. Isaiah's point is that Baal and Nebo are nothing like Yahweh. Not even close. He has no equal. There is none like him. Then Isaiah launches into a second point about how different the true God is from the false. And this is our second point of the sermon. And this point has three pieces to it. Piece number one. Look at verse 6. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. Ha! Here's my gold. Please melt it down and make god for me. The pagan peoples worship the creation of their own hands. The gods are man-made. That's Isaiah's point. The gods are man-made. But the true God is not man-made. We are God-made. This is one of the reasons, by the way, for the second commandment. You shall not make an idol or any image of God to bow before in worship. That's the second commandment. And the reason is because the idol... Follow this. The idol has to look like something in creation. But that sends exactly the wrong message, doesn't it? It would tell the world. If, if God let Israel make images and idols like everybody else, it would tell the world that God's nature is close enough in resemblance to the nature of His creatures to be sufficiently captured and depicted by creation. And so, to teach his people that there is no one like him, he forbids the making and usage of idols and images in worship. Don't you dare try to depict me with some creature. I am no creature, I am not man made. You are God made. And the point is, God cannot be worshipped through images and idols precisely because it is impossible to depict Him with any creaturely images. Baal and Nebo can be adequately depicted with creaturely images, but God utterly transcends His creation. He cannot be summed up by it or contained within it. That's piece number one. The idols, the gods are man-made, but we are God-made. So don't you dare try to make an image of God. He's nothing like anything you could imagine. So don't even try. Second piece, look at verse 7. It says, speaking now of these people who make these idols out of gold and silver, it says they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there, It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Now we're back to this picture of the people carrying their idols around. And notice what they have to do. They take the idol to the shrine or temple where it belongs. And they have to set it up and they have to support it. And they have to lock it in place so that it will stand up and not topple over. Some gods. Then they pray to it and cry out for it to save them. I mean, the folly and the futility of such practices is obvious, right? But now look at verse 8. God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. What's he saying? The gods need their worshipers to prop them up and make them stand firm. But God tells us to remember who he is so that he can make us stand firm. We are God's living images. We're not his idols, but we are his children. The gods need their people to make their images stand firm. But God is the one who makes us stand firm. The gods can't even stand themselves up, so they rely on their people to do it for them. But our God alone stands in heaven, and He is the one who makes us stand. It's as if God is saying to us, I don't have an image that needs your help, guys. You are my image and you need my help. I'm not the one who needs to stand firm. You are. So remember this. Recall to mind just who I am and just who you are and I will make you stand. Verse 9, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Third piece, in verses 10 and 11, Isaiah repeats the point he made so forcefully, as we saw last week in chapter 45, that God is absolutely sovereign. This is why he alone stands in heaven and why you and I can stand with him. Look at verses 10 and 11. He just got through saying in verse 9, I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it this is the language of a sovereign God who is not sweating the schemes of man I have a purpose and do whatever you want I'm gonna bring it to pass my counsel shall stand he says this is what we must remember when we remind ourselves just who our God is This is part of the definition of what it means to be God, to be the absolute monarch of all creation. God is the one who has decreed all things, even the very end from the very beginning. He is absolutely sovereign and his decree cannot fail to come to pass, nor can his providence fail to bring about whatever he has decreed. He says in verse 11, I have purposed, there's his decree, his eternal purpose, and I will do it. That's his providence. He exercises his absolute sovereignty even over Cyrus, as we saw last week. In fact, Cyrus is the one referred to in verse 11 when he says, a, he says, calling a bird of prey from the east. That's Cyrus. He's the bird of prey from the east. The Persian king who marches his armies westward to conquer the Middle East. The ancient Middle East. He's the bird of prey from the east. He's the man of my counsel. In verse 11. The free will of Cyrus is real, but it is subject to the free will of God. As one commentator says about this passage, quote... Those who believe Yahweh created the world should have no trouble believing He creates the world's future. Creation and providence are conjoined doctrines. End quote. And this is what you and I must remember in all seasons of life if we are going to stand firm. This is why God is able to carry you, Christian, because He alone stands in heaven as the sovereign Lord of all. And if you trust Him, He can make you stand. Well, we've seen that there is no one like our God because, number one, He alone carries His people. And number two, He alone stands in heaven. The third and final reason that Isaiah provides in the passage for why there is no one like Him is because... Now point three. He alone brings salvation. He alone brings salvation. If you just sit and read Isaiah 46 in one run. It's just 13 verses. There's an emphasis in the chapter on the issue of salvation. It's mentioned four times in in 13 verses. Verse 2, verse 4. Verse 7, verse 13. And there's also a corresponding emphasis on the need for salvation. You see, the idols need their people to save them in verse 2, but they can't. The pagans need their gods to save them in verse 7, but they can't either. The message is clear. The pagans And their gods have no hope of salvation. The gods are false and the people are lost. In contrast to this, God's people also need to be saved in verses 4 and in verse 13. And the reason they need to be saved is because they are sinners just like the pagans. God calls the Israelites transgressors in verse 8. And then look what he calls them in verse 12. He says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. Hmm. So, the gods need to be saved, but they can't do it. The pagans need to be saved, but... But they can't do it. And the Israelites, the people of God, they need to be saved too. And they can't do it either. So the only one who stands out is Yahweh. The true and living God. Because there's no one like Him. He is unlike all the rest. There's no one like Him. Why? Because He doesn't need to be saved. He's the one who... Who saves us he's the one who brings salvation and he alone you see this in verse 13 I bring near my righteousness it is not far off and my salvation will not delay I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory You and I are far from our own righteousness, but God's righteousness is within our grasp because God has brought it near and provided it for us. We have no righteousness of our own, but God prophesies and promises in verse 13 to give us His righteousness for our salvation. And this righteousness is God's saving righteousness. It's righteousness in verse 13 is parallel with salvation. You see this? He says, I bring near my righteousness, it's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. His righteousness and his salvation are parallel in verse 13. Now, in its original context, in Isaiah's day... This referred first and foremost in verse 13 to the great deliverance from exile in Persia. From the place of God's covenant wrath and curse. Israel broke their covenant, they got conquered, they got exiled. This is promising to deliver them from that wrath, that curse, that exile and bring them home. That's first and foremost historically what Isaiah 13 is referring to. Because he's promising and prophesying this to a people who are in exile. And it is immediately relevant to them. But this prophecy points forward to the fulfillment of God's ultimate promise of deliverance. Which is deliverance from spiritual exile into sin and death and the wrath that is to come. This ultimate deliverance for God's people, for His elect, those whom He has decreed to save. This ultimate deliverance for them when His saving righteousness is brought near for us needy sinners. It's finally accomplished, fully accomplished, when we are justified by faith alone. That's when that saving righteousness comes to you at the moment that you are justified by faith when you trust in Christ and believe the gospel. This is the good news that Paul preaches in Romans chapter 3. Read verses 19 through 26 where God reveals his saving righteousness for lost sinners and we are justified by faith alone. That's when verse 13 was fulfilled for you. This isn't just some prophecy that's about big things in history that don't touch real life. This is a promise and prophecy fulfilled for you. When you believed the gospel, the scriptures were fulfilled. Now finally, last thing to say this morning. Notice that what that the text says in verse 13 I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Not for the whole world, not for the Persians, not for the Babylonians, not for the Canaanites, for Israel. I'm going to put my salvation in Zion, and it's for my people. It's for Israel, my glory. Now, watch this. It says, God's salvation will not delay. It will come at exactly the appointed time. It is prophesied here, and it is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. God sends his salvation to Zion in the person of the Savior for the sake of his people. Now, check this out. Remember Baal and Nebo, right? Baal and Nebo, verse 1, the gods of Babylon, the two chief gods of Babylon... Bel was actually a title. Bel is a word that means Lord. And it was a title for the chief god of Babylon whose actual name is Marduk. He's the hero warrior god. He's the one who created the world. If you, in the, the texts, the ancient texts that describe this story of Marduk creating the world out of the severed bodies of other gods that he defeats... Right? It's, in a book, it's, in the, it's a creation myth. And it's in a book called Enuma Elish. Okay? You can read this free online anywhere you want. Marduk. You can still read the story. One of the oldest written stories in the world that has survived. Bel is the title for this god, Marduk. Okay. And check this out. Nebo, in Babylonian mythology, was Marduk's son. The son of God. Marduk is Babylon's god the father, and Nebo is the divine son of God. These gods stooped down in verse 1, but they could not save, and their images fell to the ground. When they stooped low, they were shattered and they could not rise. And their people were scattered and left with no hope their images are nothing and they are nothing but the true God who alone carries his people the true God who alone stands in heaven who alone brings salvation he sends his son the true and eternal son of God and he stooped down to bring his salvation near To bear the full weight of our sin and to rise up victorious over it. Bel and Marduk, father and son, fail and fall. But God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, your living Savior, they do not fail. They have not fallen. Christ stooped down to our lowliness and went all the way to death, even the death on the cross. And because of that, he has risen above the heavens. And he rules and reigns today for you. Bel and Marduk failed, but God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, succeed in bringing everlasting salvation for their people. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass I have purposed, and I will do it." So listen to the word of the Lord today, Christian. Remember who He is. This is your God, Christian. Baal and Nebo are a parody of the real thing. You serve the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your God is the sovereign Lord. He's creation's king. He alone will carry you all the way to glory. He alone can make you stand firm when everything else gives way. He alone gave his only begotten son so that you will never perish. Give him your heart today, Christian. Trust him with your life. Praise him with your lips. Love him With all you have. And follow Him. With all your strength. He is worthy. He is your God. And there is no one like Him. Let's pray. Father we thank you that we serve a living and true God. Mighty and powerful. Unstoppable. Matchless. In your majesty, nothing to compare to you. You are absolutely unique, and we are your people, and we bow before you, blown away by your sovereign mercy, grateful forever for the mercy of the cross. We reject the bales and nebos of this world, the false gods, the idols, the pretenders, the parodies, the lame joke deities that this world shoves in our face and Tells us to believe and trust. And we turn empty from this world. And we turn to you and we say, Oh God, come and fill us with all your goodness and all of your mercy. Fill us today. Help us to get our eyes off of these deceptions around us in the world. And to turn our eyes ultimately up to you and to your son seated at your right hand the true God, Father and Son. And may we worship You for who You are. May we never entertain any rivals to You in our hearts. May You be seated alone forever in our hearts. Make us to stand. We trust You to carry us. And we long for that day when Your salvation of us will be complete, when we can see You, O God, face to glorious face. Oh, give us a taste and a relish for that day and may that sweeten every bitter moment of life and get us ready to be with you forever. And may we never have to hear Jesus say to us, Philip, don't you know me? Oh, let us know you so that we never have to face that question. We want to know you more. Teach us. We're hungry for more of you. And may we go with faith and joy, bearing everything you bring our way, eager to obey everything you've called us to do. Increase our faith, strengthen our love, and send us from this place worshiping you with all we have. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.